uh, the Art Fight Podcast. Uh, Brian Siskin with Joe Nolan, and we are with James Perrin today, and we are super excited because uh, there's some pretty powerful things going on at the Frist and elsewhere, and we're going to, and if you don't know about the Frist, uh, if you're outside of Nashville, it's, it is our um, art museum now. It's not the uh, center for the arts. It is now the Frist Art Museum. Mm-hmm. Um uh, do they have a permanent collection? No, they don't. See, it's very weird, isn't it's it? It's ambiguous. It's I, but I, I like, but I like yeah. the Frist Art Museum. I'm nerdy about the museum word, and part of me is wants to be a stickler for the collecting institution line of it. But they point out quickly and directly, and with you know great practice, immediately, you know all the places that call themselves museums that don't have collections, and that's one of the reasons why oh, they so that's feel been sort of they, they're not in the some first. Way. They're not the first people to do that. I see. And they also, I've, from what I've heard too, a big motivator for them was just the practicality of it's what everybody calls us anyway. Everybody, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That lots of people feel like it's they just call it Frist Art Museum anyway. You know? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a whole group of museums that are non-collecting museums. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. that's the term non, yeah. non-collecting. Yeah. They're, they're not conscientious objectors to the notion of collecting. Yeah. They just don't collect. We just don't do it. Okay. It's so expensive yeah. to collect anyway yeah. these days. Yeah. And if you buy if you buy younger artists, it's you don't know what you're getting mm-hmm. 10 years down the road. So right. you waste a lot of money on a artist that just stops making. I mean, there's one artist I've been trying to figure out what happened to him. I was showing him Mary Boone in the early 2000s. And his name is Andy Collins, and I have no mm-hmm. idea what happened to him. It's like he completely dropped off the face of the planet. Was he a painter too? Yeah, he was a painter. And uh, last thing I can find that he made was like 2005 or 2007. Huh. They're still floating around, but so it's been at least actually, a decade. Yeah, and yeah. I and I actually and I in, I messaged somebody on Instagram who uh, is kind of a he's been showing a Mary Boone for years, and I was like, "What happened to this guy?" And he was like, "You know, I have no idea." Uh huh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Life changes. Is what yeah. He said. Well, it's weird because I don't think people really think about like the fact that it's like it's not just buying the art, but then it's storing the art, caring for the art. It is. You know, there's there's you know, paintings have to be cleaned. <laughs> you know, people don't even know that. You know, I've got a buddy who uh, run. I just had tacos with him. He runs a studio in East Nashville, a music studio, and he's got tons of his own instruments. He's an artist in his own right, Andrew Atkins. And he uh, he and I were talking about the fact that he's recently bought some more guitars. And he's like, it's not that I don't have room for the guitars, but I don't have room for the cases. <laughs> and then we got yeah. into this whole thing of like, you don't think about the fact that you've got a guitar and a case. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So tastes change and you may not want to show something and 20 years down the road is back in fashion again mm-hmm. and and forget buying old renaissance paintings yeah um, <laughs> no <laughs> well, what, what, what did that what, what did that leonardo da vinci go for that they found i don't know restored it was like 300 million dollars um saudi prince bought it i was gonna oh, say it has right. to be in yeah, dubai yeah, yeah, somewhere yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. forget a museum being able to yeah, build up that collection. If you're not days. if you're not royalty, you're not getting these paintings. Even as an artist, I think you know anybody can agree that once something is three hundred million dollars, there's just something strange going on. Yeah, money laundering. <laughs> that's exactly right. We call that money laundering. It's, that, that's totally true. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's that's a, I think that's it. it's functional. What did, did I see that you just posted on Twitter today? A thing where they found a they were like renovating a building and they uncovered a thirty year old. Keith Herring mural. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, someone's going to cut that out and sell it. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of appreciate that the, the, the archaeology of that, you know, in terms of just um, you know street art, you know, sort of being unearthed in these ways that 
a lot of other things will not be unearthed because they're being kept with their yeah and cleaned and and all of that i suppose there's also the potential for any apocalypse or ruins or whatever yeah uh but um but yeah i just i thought that was cool one thing about um about uh having a gallery or something like that is a lot of times like i know having uh my photos with red arrow gallery they they've got a bunch of my photos right now so i don't have to I don't have to figure out what to do with them, you know. Like they've they've got they've got them stored, and really it's it's really helpful, frankly, because I don't have a ton of room to store photos in, you know. So what about you? Do does Tinny have a bunch of store? I know they have some no, storage at the arcade across the street or whatever. They may keep a couple of paintings, but uh-huh. it's, it's not as much as what I wish they would. Yeah, they, they just don't have the space. What do you do so. with all that stuff? Because you, James, you make rather large oil paintings. Well, and yeah, Tinny, there's there's a couple that are gigantic. <laughs> yeah, um, the 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 longer one is made in panels, but right. the, in the last show, but those two, it's like two massive panels and then one smaller yeah. one, right? Yeah, um, the last show it actually they had the paintings were actually larger. Um, there were three three pan- panels that were uh, ninety by eighty six, I think. Mm-hmm. So this nine, is a, nine, nine, uh, 96 by 80. So they were, so they were eight, basically. Eight Tinny Contemporary, a gallery in Nashville on Fifth Avenue, Nashville's Avenue of the Arts. And this was, you did a show in 2015 there, and you have a show yeah. up there right now through the end of June, right? Right. Okay. It actually, it goes, it, it's extended one week into into July. Okay. Will, so, they, will they actually be doing it for the crawl again yeah, next month? Oh, okay, great. The closing will be on the crawl. Oh, okay, cool. That's awesome. That's good. Yeah. So if you if you live in Nashville and you're hearing this podcast before July seventh, Saturday, July seventh, the first Saturday of July, you got to go see James's show down at Tinny Contemporary. And you can't miss you can't miss these paintings. Uh, they're pretty distinctive. They're pretty teeming and sort of active, and uh, in many cases, pretty pretty bright. Um, you know, I think that I think that your stuff is is um, like everything that I've seen or been able to find online or anything about your work, it, it's so clear um, that it's yours and it's definitely, um, it's got this kind of a really cool sort of, I don't wanna, I, I'm gonna take like a really sophomoric approach at sort of describing it, but basically it's, uh, for the anybody listening, they might be like, well, what were you talking about here? I suppose it's abstract on some level for sure, um, but it's definitely dimensional or sort of, uh, multi-dimensional in a way where you feel it, it's a, it puts your eyes through a little bit of a workout in an interesting way because it's you kind of have to relate to it and then you sort of your eyes starts looking for sort of structures and places of basis to sort of orient because uh, sometimes it's, it feels more like a scene and sometimes it feels more like a uh, an abstraction of a, a reaction or some sort of uh, energy or, or something. Um, so it's it's pretty interesting because it's kind of uh, architectural almost in a way, but at the same time deeply uh, sort of vital and, and abstract at the same time. Um, and that's really just a long-winded way of saying it's really awesome. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like you're you're building up a lot. Like you're, you know, there's it's not. Uh, a couple of brushstrokes and, and call it yeah. a day. Like there's some sculpture, surface sculpture sort of going on, uh, which I think is re- is really neat. And some of it actually is sort of, 
in a vague way actually reminded me of some of sort of um, I mean uh, uh, of Anselm Kiefer's kind of work in a weird even when he was working with metals and other materials but you're just working with the I mean granted I know that you 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 mix it up in terms of uh, you know the the chemical makeup of what you're doing is pretty unique maybe you can help us understand that a little bit more but it seems like it's very um, architectural and kind of uh, built in a lot of ways it, it's surface oriented and and um, the I could go into the story about how I how I started to build up the surface in that way and I guess I should um, a few years ago I made a series of um, I got the idea of what is you know what, what's an object of paint uh, what's a mark in a painting and so um, every every painter has these the palette debris that they scrape off their palette if they're using a glass palette especially and so I would have these just globs of paint that would either be dry that never used or or, or chips that um, were uh, scraped off and um, just random pieces of paint debris and I started to see them as objects within themselves and so I did a series of paintings integrating uh, Start basically doing studies of what these objects, um, how to integrate them into an illusionistic space, and I used this interior of Walmart. I took a lot. Of, I took a series of photographs inside Walmart, and so I started to integrate these um, the paint chips um, into you know illusionistic space, and it was mainly to uh, be able to have a reference for larger paintings. Use the passages in these smaller paintings to blow it up and and so it, and everything in the paintings most of it anyway has a reference in something that I've seen it's not necessarily an emotional abstraction hmm. um, it's more of a algorithm algorithmic mm -hmm. if that's a word mm -hmm. abstraction or um, very logical abstraction it just has this teeming sort of energetic quality to it or something that's almost like um extrasensory or something is kind of what I, I get from it it's like uh, you know and what I get from it I suppose is it's allowable that it's different perhaps from its intention um, but uh, but yeah so it's uh, it just it's just really vital it's really vital um, and it doesn't feel like it's sitting there it feels like it's doing or you know it feels like it is mm. I feel I was the words like cosmic and primordial and things like that always come up for me when I'm looking at these paintings. Like I honestly I feel like I'm like seeing like the beginning of the universe or something mm. in some ways, you know? I think uh, I think in your your maybe even in the last show in the 2015 show even more cuz those were like you had a much darker palette going yeah. on and a lot of that stuff. One of the highlights of the show to me at Tinny right now is the the use of color. I really think it's, you know, not that not that it makes them better or worse, but it makes them. It it shows like what's new, what you've newly brought to the work, and it's it's a cool evolution. And some of that stuff, I mean, it's it's still got the weight and the sort of the, you know, really honestly, I think Mark Scala would say the sublime quality that that the work has always had. But then you also have these bursts of color and these really interesting uses of forms in a way that sort of stand out because they do have such much brighter palette. Yeah. 
My wife likes this show a lot better. You, you were asking me what what I do, what I've done with the other paintings, and they're like sitting in our house. And my wife is like, "Your paintings just make me anxious." <laughs> and since we're looking for a new house, I'm, yeah. I'm like, "Well, give me, let's let's find a place with a studio or build a studio. Yeah, then yeah, you won't have yeah. to look at them. We'll yeah, yeah, my yeah. Studio. This is like, a good. solvable problem. Yeah. Yeah. But, but but she likes the newer ones better. They don't make yeah, you feel she, so anxious. Yeah. <laughs> if, if the house hunt doesn't seem to be going your way, you can just do a particularly <laughs> agitating yeah. series just for your. House. We gotta get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> right, I'm in my fluorescent period. Just leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. No, but I, I do think. I mean, I, I understand what she means. I mean, I feel like they, uh, they, yeah, they're they're active things, you know. And I really, I really, especially painting. I mean, visual art in general, probably, but definitely paintings. I want to be affected by a painting. I don't mm. want to be. I don't want to be quizzed by a painting or right. reference to a, a you know a tome that's going to serve as right. my statement for this painting. I want to be I want to be affected by a painting, and your paintings are absolutely affecting, a hundred percent. Yeah, I and that's what I gravitate towards. I gravitate towards the painting as a as more of a symbol of of you know human emotion or, or experience, and um, you know. The, what I've experienced, what I've looked at, filtered through me and tried to and relate to other people. But I, so my paintings are less uh, conceptual or idea oriented, or mm-hmm. or they don't. There's not a, necessarily a concrete ideology behind them. They're yeah. more. Um, I try to. It's one of their strengths, frankly. Yeah, and the the painting at the frist. Um, it's. It, I think it describes my process. Um, or the the conce- mm. conceptual basis behind my process. Mm. The, the title of that painting is Semiosis on the Sea, and semiosis basically the study of of signs and fl- and fluctuating meanings within signs. And so, when I was talking about that painting, and I hadn't, I don't talk about my paintings that much, and so it takes me a while to get into a rhythm of how to relate them. Yeah, but, yeah. But but basically, when I a lot of everything in the in most everything in my paintings has a a visual basis or a, or a, a conceptual reference to something, but I, I also use use it to um, bridge a meaning into, like the light of a pond can um, can be the sun in the painting, or or uh, a dress can be bands of color, and and so to me, everything in a painting evokes a, a meaning in in someone, whether it be the mat the madness of a black area or the sheen of a black area or um uh whether the, there's texture whether there's illusionistic space whether it flattens out whether there's what kind of light is in the painting dark or white you know everything relate has a meaning and everything relates um to people on some level and and then it can shift depending on how you look at it what kind of mood you're in mm-hmm. and so i want i want them to be more holist or um holistic type of experiences yeah i think that comes through man and i i think look i I think i need to like just interrupt again really quick here and say okay so if you're keeping score uh james has a solo exhibition at tinny right now that's a must see and it'll be up through the first saturday in july on july 7th you can go to the closing reception then and in the meantime you are the one nashville artist who's been included in this international survey of painting uh, that was organized by the Frist Center here in Nashville. It's called Chaos and Awe, and um, uh, yeah, and and but even even though that painting at the Frist 
and sort of as the way you're describing it with all these like sort of nebulous elements that all sort of come together in this holistic way um, uh, even that painting which is smaller than some of the ones at Tinney and things but that one still has this sort of cosmic vibe that I'm talking about however it also just like your Walmart paintings starts off as a photograph right um or takes its inspiration from a photograph. Is that correct? Not. They're basically collages, and, uh-huh. and I and I work it out digitally now. And so uh-huh. the references range from um, beach photographs, or um, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, he. Or, uh, so Mark mentioned that at the yeah. media thing that that there was a picture. It was a, basically a girl sitting on a beach, and by the time you were done with the painting, it turned into yeah this. Well, cosmic <laughs> yeah. primordial crazy space. what was wrong with the, just the girl on the beach that sounds great well, it was it was more it was more of the the um structure of uh-huh. someone sitting on a beach and and that the that uh the kind of movement that would create inside the painting mm-hmm. the structure and, mm-hmm. and actually wasn't I, I mean i tried to find a picture of a girl on a beach i could use i ended mm-hmm. up taking a picture of myself in my studio <laughs> it was a picture and, of you well no it never really originated as a picture uh-huh. i wanted a reference to see how legs like if you're sitting like with your arms on your knees right and sitting like, on the sand yeah like yeah. A, like a kid would do or right something. and what what it actually looked like but it, it was more just the a starting point and then right so you had to drink like just like eight beers and then like, <laughs> yeah, i'm gonna like get my sort of lack of muscle control and <laughs> right. governance just like yeah. a kid eight beers like i used to do yeah. when i was seven right. <laughs> <laughs> but the, that whole like the whole center of that painting it's very um textured and so that that mm-hmm. that part of the painting is derived from the walmart series and so everything's just overlaid and mixed together and mm. and um uh, yeah when were your paintings not so good um <laughs> I, I mean I, I guess some people would say they're not good now <laughs> um I, I was a terrible I, I feel like my student work was terrible I, I feel like I it was I, I feel like I started to get make paintings I enjoyed around when I, when I was like 30 maybe mm-hmm. yeah um that's also just when you start he, to enjoy life. Yeah, <laughs> getting out yeah. of twenties is always good. Yeah, twenties yeah. are. Did you uh, had you been painting essentially since you were a teenager or something like that? Probably actually since I was uh, seven. Oh, okay. Or so. yeah, my, yeah. My aunt was a. Um, she would give oil painting lessons. Right. So so twenty three years, guys, and you'd be happy. <laughs> start painting. <laughs> That's right. Twenty three years to go. <laughs> then you'll get at a baseline of zero. Of just yeah. Fundamentally acceptable work. <laughs> now, you, now you'll feel like you can enjoy doing it. <laughs> no, I do find it interesting. You know, like uh, that. You. The, the, just the actual time and the actual work and the actual process that goes into these things. One thing that's interesting about your stuff is I think we think about, you know, you know, in a very cursory way, when you talk about abstract painting, I think people ultimately, you know, they're, they, they, the first thing they might think of would be like, you know, Jackson Pollock or something. If they, if they're not in the art scene and don't actually think about abstract painting that right. much. And so there's this idea that, ab, that abstraction is like this, just, you know, impulsive, energetic kind of thing that you do. Um, but your paintings are, are as, as wild and as visually sort of like, you know, um, energized as they are. Um, they're clearly very meticulously painted. Yeah, they are. And, and, 
I kind of I go back to something my one of my professors said in graduate school. He was like, when you look at a Pollock or you look at a Mondrian or something, um, you you can't really take anything out. And you can't really put anything in without completely um, changing the painting. And so th- those paintings are completely resolved and um, structurally, uh, in, in a sense, um, uh, perfect in a way. And so when I and I feel like I've that one of my strengths is being able to design a painting, and um, I just kind of go back to what, the feedback I got in as a student, um, and even my, I think and my dad was um, he could have been an architect. I think he he didn't pursue it. So I feel like I have kind of a design mm-hmm. sensibility, and so when I put the paintings together, I think about what's what's the what's a really strong structure. A visual structure, compositional structure, what can what what needs to be there and what ne- what can be taken out. And probably a lot of people would say you can take a lot a lot of stuff out of my paintings, but because they're too complicated. Do you? Feel but like, I, go ahead. Sorry. But I but I like the idea of the complexity resolving itself and and meshing together and becoming um, something different. A lot of really a lot of times different times you look at it. So do you have like a particular? structural um, integrity that you're always trying to sort of put in place as in this sort of architectural way, like where you feel like there's almost rules or no, no, it's, it's, uh, I I think it's, it's just developing a sensibility and intuitive sense of what's work, what works, what doesn't work. Where does, when do you want to throw something off balance? When do you want it to be balanced? Um, when do you Mm -hmm. want something to be emotional and, and, Got it. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's about feeling, but um, the more you do something, obviously, the better you get at it. And so you're able to mesh what's um, the way you want something to be and um, what's obviously good or, mm. or, or structurally good. Um, I, one criticism in grad school was somebody said, you overbuild your paintings. And... and that bastard. <laughs> and so, and so there, there's, there's a, there's a sense to something being elegantly simple and balanced and, and uh, very strong in a simple way. And but, um, I've always gradu- uh, uh, gravitated towards complexity. Sometimes I'll listen to the same song, put it on two different, um, you know, two seconds apart, play it, like a, play it on YouTube, play it on iTunes, and play it so it. It's overlapping, but two seconds apart. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, so is that song, but it's really a lot more complicated. And okay, we got to talk. We got to talk about this. <laughs> so, this is just only not so, not to have like a, a sort of stereo reverb type of effect, but actually to just sort of create a fold to create two x the complexity of whatever the nature is of the composition. Is that kind of what you're saying? You mean in my paintings? No, and oh, this oh. this YouTube and oh. the, the uh, like playing music. I don't know. I, I guess I started doing it like um, I don't do it all the time. But, um, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. maybe uh, I think we should have your wife on next. <laughs> um, I guess the last time I really got into it was with an LCD sound system, uh-huh. song. and so um, hey, you play it on. You find it on YouTube. Play it. Yeah. Put it on your iTunes, and you wait a couple of seconds and you play it and so it's just the same thing it's just echoing in and out of yeah i have that experience a lot when i'm uh if, if i'm sampling uh a record something off of a record 
and so I'll be playing the record through like a device like that, like an MPC or something. And so I'm using it also to sort of monitor the sound. So I'm listening to the sound, I'm monitoring, and then I hear a bit that I want to get, and so I, I grab that, and then uh, and then without necessarily turning off the record that's been playing, that's already at some sort of a tempo, then I'll start playing back the the sample, or it'll get caught like and start looping, and and then it's just like in <laughs> there for a little bit. I can't tell anymore like what was the thing I was lifting versus <laughs> like what's the. Um, so I can kind of get down with some of that. Um, I, I think. The, I think the idea of just creating new contexts for anything, even in the simplest ways, is a really uh, healthy thing to do because it's just going to trigger all kinds of... It, or it can put you just in a different headspace or make you feel a bit more liberated, perhaps, about what you're doing. Or I don't know. Have you ever thought about taking one of your paintings and then just, after you're done, cutting it right down the middle <laughs> and then just folding it over by about <laughs> like an inch and a half? Or, or, yeah, know. well, I mean, the the way that I compose paintings now digitally, it, it, it kind of started that way. The, and I guess it, the first time... Um, I, I, I guess I can take it back to grad school. I had a had a painting that was. Where did um, you go to grad school? By the Boston way? University. Okay. And so that was before um, I, before I really was versed in computers. But I but I had a uh, a picture of two different paintings, very similar, um, and I don't know how it happened, but I butted them up against each other, turned them on the on the side, butted them up against each other, and, and they were very um, they were almost stained glass type aesthetic. And when I did that, it, it made a very long painting, very colorful, long painting that um, was just it just felt expansive. And I was like, "That's that's the painting I wanna I wanna make." And so I did a couple paintings like that. And then I this was for the thesis show. And then I um, made they ended up being like thirteen feet long, I think. And then um, made two paintings, and then made another painting like that, except pulled the two paintings apart, put one and put another one in the center. So I and but that. Fast forward, um, let's see, f five, six years, I really started to manipulate paintings and overlay them and take the same painting, reproduce it and, and put it over put it over the um, an image of the painting and put it into a perspective. And so I started to play around with um, reproduction of, or rep repetitive images at that point. And it still kind of continues today. I'll repeat certain elements in a painting. Mm-hmm. Because so so you're saying that you're basically modeling these things up digitally before you do the painting, yeah. essentially. Okay. Yeah. Now so, these days I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it allows me to run through like just so many different options. To me, it's one of the things that's really interesting about your work because it doesn't. Your the pieces ultimately don't look like they are. They they seem so sensual that you don't really understand how much like actual like planning has gone right. into it you know what i'm saying like you don't again it's not this wild expressive thing but but it ultimately comes off like like something more like that than something that's actually been planned to the point where hey this worked in this one and i used it again over right. here and it's like what <laughs> <You Right. know? laughs> so it's 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 really interesting to know that there's such a deep process but i i also think too that the complexity of your work i think is is really one of the things that makes it stand apart and i think 
we're in a time of I think we're in a maximalist time. We're not in a minimalist so. time. So I think you're I think you're I think you're right on time, frankly. And I think that's that's why you've got a big show downtown and you're the only artist in the Nashville show in uh, at the Frist Center right now. I think it's fantastic. No offense to our other wonderful Nashville artists, but it's just it's saying something that he that you're the one that Mark uh, Mark uh picked to to be in this show. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to what he thought would, you know, mm-hmm. what what he thought would fit, and yeah. what, what spoke to him. And I'm lucky enough to have a painting that he liked, mm-hmm. and to be f- and for him to be familiar with my work. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, and he understands how to how how that fits into yeah. So speaking of like the time, so like in the idea that you know people are real mad about stuff right now for a lot of real good reasons, and just the things in the larger culture, and you know all of that. You know, we have so many. I don't know. There's uh, somewhere between outrage culture and an apocalypse and real, actual, <laughs> like really bad problems yeah. is all happening at once. And, you know, just the whole sort of confusion of what's happening right now. I was just curious as to like um, if and how you feel like any sort of responsibility to kind of address things in, in the vehicle of, of your work, or is it just something that's like, cause at least for me, I can just say that I, I don't feel like an, uh, for the things that I make, I don't feel like I need to directly address anything necessarily, but I think that if you can just make people feel something uh, or experience something, then perhaps, and it's authentic in some way, then perhaps people will seek out more authenticity and experiential things in their life and that on some basic level that that's uh, what the world needs or I don't know, whatever. But I guess uh, I was just curious, you know, if you wrestle with, with that at all, you know, I, I don't really feel the need to address issues in yeah. society directly. I mean, I, I think the last time, um, I mean, the Renaissance, Renaissance painting uh, was very literate in terms of um, relaying ideas and but people were illiterate. And so right. a lot of times, and, and so, um, or they could, or they didn't. They weren't reading the Bible. It was, which was the idea that they were stories. How dare they? Were, they? <laughs> <laughs> stories that the that the church was trying to relate or whatever. So, but I've always thought painting was not a very good vehicle to relay um, a specific idea of writing and, and words or much better <laughs> if, if you want to get if you really yeah. want to get down to a nuanced right. idea yeah. painting painting is a visual art form and so it, it should exp- i think it should express things that cannot be expressed mm-hmm. it should really vi- it should visually express things that can't be verbally expressed and so these things are feelings or in- intuitions or and so my paintings i like to i mean they're basically full of c- contrast and conflict but i but I try to resolve it on on the um, in the painting. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the. I, I mean, uh, not to be cliche again. I've said this several times, but it's basically about uh, bringing a little bit of order out of chaos, mm-hmm. and creating a resolution. There was a Sonic Youth song that I first first Sonic Youth song I heard was in high school, and I it. Um, it was sugarcane. Do you, you know that song? I guess. Do you guys know Not that? Not top of my head, but I don't. I don't. But I, it, Sonic Youth is taking me yeah. back a little bit. But it's <laughs> but it's a very melodic song. But then it disintegrates yeah. into like complete chaos and noise. And then after the noise, um, it, it starts over again and and pulls everything together. Mm-hmm. And a lot of you know, it's very classical. I mean, uh, I remember it's going to a Mozart uh, symphony in the in Boston and felt the same way 
felt overwhelming and then it would become I mean I think there's dissolved. a lot of things that play on you know a lot of I don't know creations that that play on on that you know there's disintegration and reintegration right. and conclusion and right. store the elements of story right. essentially sort of do that with you know um I think it's a natural it's a natural thing but I mean you know it's like how, how do you know how do you know that how do you base like your own feeling of of um being successful because it's not about like you know it's great to have your stuff at the frist or it's great to have your stuff in all these different galleries and doing all these different things and people really respecting and appreciating your work but like for you personally like how, how do you get to a point where you're like okay I've, I feel you know because there's probably a lot of things you've done that were not necessarily successful that you felt were very successful and then vice versa you mean just with individual paintings just or? just in general like because you, you're just you're living this life that you've dedicated yourself to doing this thing yeah i mean i, I feel like i'm just getting started so yeah <laughs> I, I feel like success is you know it it's uh you gotta relative. put some things behind you in some ways kind of what you think like you, you, well it's, it's success is relative and uh, i mean yeah. um i think su- when i think of p- success as an artist it um it, right, it's not even real. Yeah, <laughs> you can get very. Um, I don't. Know, I don't want to get. Yeah, I guess. I guess it comes down to what is success, and I have. I feel like I'm not like I'm just now getting to a point where I can um, really start to develop, have more time, and you know, the the more paintings I sell, the the, the if I if I get to a point where I'm making paintings and selling them. Um, it'll just create more time for me to develop and so I don't commercial success um, is one thing and then critical success and um, personal success all these things how do you find a balance there they if you if if one outweighs if one consumes the others then it becomes um, one-sided if too much commercial success will you know who knows i don't i don't know yeah i just i mean it's a, it's a i hate that word in a way because yeah. it's such a it was just sort of a, a question to kind of get to sort of sort of what is your personal sort of barometer for like things are going pretty well or like i'm feeling good right now or i feel like i'm flowing or yeah. you know things are happening versus like uh man i feel like because success can really in a conventional sense be the worst thing ever and usually or not usually often is for people because then you feel like you're a slave to this sort of expectation or all these other things, you know, uh, like for me, my, my version of success is very simple. And, and I figured this out very early on, which was I started playing drums when I was 19 years old. Uh, and I immediately was in this band that was playing really complex music for no reason. And, uh, and I was, we, we got in like the second or third show that we ever, no, the first show that we ever played, I remember thinking, if all I ever want out of this entire musical career that I might be embarking on in any kind of way, all I want is to be able to go out there and play one show and no one laugh at me or think that I'm wholly or completely incompetent or boo me off the stage, right? Like, that's like if I just impact, like, vaguely passable to the point of just being unnoticed, <laughs> then that is the greatest success that I would have ever imagined. You know, because I I had grown up, you know, being such a fan of music and all this stuff, and then all of a sudden I turned the corner into playing it, and so that was a big deal. So I was sort of like somewhere between like uh, I just don't want to get found out, 
you know, or, or whatever it was. And uh, and I did it and I was just like, okay, everything else is gravy <laughs> at this point. Like every other project I've ever done in my life is just gravy. Like I'm, I'm wildly more successful than I ever thought that I would ever be. So like my baseline for that super basic and almost comical. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I want my paintings to be around forever. Mm. <laughs> so mm. so that that's success to me. I, I mean, I like the idea of having a to making a, a a few images that resonate so strongly with um, the culture and the world we live in that they just stick around and people look at them for you know hundreds of years until they fall apart. I mean, that, that's that's success to me. Yeah, D- absolute decay. Being yeah. allowed to decay. Right. Right. Yeah. With dignity, yeah, and and making uh and conser- lighting, ma- making the conservationists, uh, um, you know, uh, be on edge. And but I mean, Mark Mark said Mark said <laughs> conservationists are going to hate you, and I was like, well, no, I try to make it to where they're not going to just fall apart. Yeah, because they are very, I mean, they have so much stuff just stuck on them. You have to be careful with them. So that's what he was talking about. But um, so there's a lot of painters, right? That um consciously make things thinking ahead of sort of how they're going to fall apart or how they're going to decay or how colors will fade or various things. I suppose, I don't know, I guess we're all stuck in this kind of mortality trap on some level. Like we, like what, like primordially, what is it about us that like wants, when you say like, I want my paintings to last forever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Makes total sense to me. But if you step back from that too, it's sort of like, you know, I, I think that what's in, introduced to other variables to me is just the the more I've gotten to understand them, uh, more about just street art yeah. and how, like, you know, this mural that's outside, you know, it's like, well, I'm like, how long will that last? You know, oh, well, about about 20 or 30 years. You know? It's not in the weather. You'd have to have somebody repainting it. <laughs> yeah, so like, it, 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 you know, because of the types of materials, it's, you know, they're warranted or, you know, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about this stuff, but you know, I, I don't know. There's something also beautiful about sort of the temporary nature of everything, and that's ultimately what everything is. So it's it's a strange dichotomous kind of consideration. It is, and yeah, I, lately I've been more interested in faded frescoes than mm. like just a remnant of what was there. Sounds um, like the worst theme park ever. Rides <laughs> <laughs> that daddy, don't. Daddy, daddy, take us to faded frescoes. <laughs> <laughs> or have have rides that now, don't really now. work. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 oh man, the Renaissance theme park. <laughs> um, it's like the worst Renaissance fair of all time. <laughs> <laughs> or like the worst Mexican restaurant or something. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, don't, I just think it's, um, you know, when when you're when you put so much energy into something, it becomes a manifestation of of all that, and it lives. And I, I'm a person that believes in the power of objects, and you know, I think a lot of things can be given meaning. Like I feel like I can assign heavy meaning to something, you know, personal that's a a thing, and there's some level where other people can pick up on that, or they get a sense of it. Um, like you know my car you know my buddy Andy he said I feel like your car has a force field around it Whoa. I was like it's because it's an 85 Toyota Celica <laughs> they had you know. those back then <laughs> right <laughs> you don't they see those had, very often yeah. anymore no you never see them how fast have you driven, driven it? it yeah um, 
Well, so I've taken it, I've gotten it up to about will 95. It, will it go particularly fast? It's, it's the worst, for me to go out of my way to get this car, like you know, this kind of fetishized car, it is absolutely the worst performing <laughs> car on it. Like it is incredibly slow. Like it's, it's one of those things where like when you're getting on the highway, it feels dangerous. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially somebody's like short on ramps, you're, yeah, you're yeah, just like, yeah. come on, buddy, you need come like a on. Run, you need like a runway. <laughs> yeah. But the good news is uh, there's a lot of, uh, you can see out of older cars so much better because there's not all this safety stuff. Mm. <laughs> so, there's no safety, but there's the no view. big pillars, what you know, or whatever. <laughs> so like when I'm getting on the highway, I really have to judge like, okay, you know, um, but yeah, it's, it's terrible performance. Uh, it, it, um, it, it, top speed is, you know, I, I would imagine like a hundred, which is pretty insane feeling, uh, in that car. Um, and then, uh, I will, but I'll also say that it is the most magnificent driving experience I've ever had because it's so relaxing and it smells like, um, it's, it has like an old, it's got a beautiful it's, interior. It's got an old new car. It's 57,000 miles. So this thing is wow. probably, it's insane. It's probably one of the, and it's definitely one of those things where it was really funny when I first got it because people were either like, why did you buy that? Like, what is your problem? Or, or people would stop me in the street or literally, you know, make offer cash offers at stoplights <laughs> and all this, you know, it's like this weird mix of, so basically it's, it's like a loser, cool car. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's something. Yeah. But you know, it's got powers. It's got some energy running through it. It's yeah. got something and it's, it was one owner. I feel like I almost make, I want to make a documentary where I just go track this woman down She's probably in her seventies now in Providence, Rhode Island. Just be like, "Hey, I've got it. It's all good." You know, <laughs> just go find her, see what's up. Uh, but that's that might be more than you. That might be more than you wanted to know about my car. But I will talk about it at uh, you know ad nauseum. Um, but yeah, and then you know, Joe likes his truck. I do like my You truck, like your yeah. truck, and that day you washed it, you were like, dude, you got to come look at it. It's washed. <laughs> <laughs> I got some major work done on it, and I cleaned it all up. I was very proud of it. What kind of truck do you have? It's a Dodge Dakota. It's uh, uh, I Actually, the reason, the, I, I really love that truck, but part of it's because I inherited it from my dad when he passed away a couple years ago. See. And that car was a car that was... Um, uh, he basically bought it when he retired, so it had almost no miles on it either because it was it had low mileage to begin with, and then he didn't drive it a whole lot. What year is it? It's a 2006, all right? So it's 12 years old, but it only has 65,000 miles on it. So That's good. So it's got some... I've had some issues with it just because it is 12 years old, and it doesn't matter how much it's been driven, stuff starts falling apart, you know? But... Um, uh, but I've done some conservation work, and uh, and I think I've restored its value. <laughs> be proud, but yeah, I, see, cars have power. Yeah, well, like you say, objects do, and I think that's mm. that's particularly with painting. I think I think it's 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 something that I'm interested in when it comes to photography as well. But with painting, I think one of the ways that you can explain that painting paintings are important as objects is that people can send me high res digital images all day long. And if they're sending me pictures of paintings, I mean, sometimes it's helpful for me to get a sense of what's going on here, but I guarantee you that if you're looking at a digital image of a painting, it is nothing like looking at the painting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the difference. You know, the thing itself is the difference. Yeah. Paintings are objects. Yeah. So made out of material. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't, 
don't even necessarily again people who you know are gallery goers or artists themselves they all get that but I think the average person doesn't really think about the idea that it's like you know that there's paintings have texture and surface and all this stuff they have it's not just a picture quote unquote you well, know we're in I mean? the age of every, almost everything being a facsimile even if it's right facsimiles of knowledge or truth or facsimiles of images or mm. or you know people spend two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to make a record that gets consumed on four dollar apple earbuds i mean it's all the same problem ultimately is just anything that's really really thought about really put a lot of energy into it really care for it like you have to have this particular experience with it and if you don't have like an active first person experience with it in a, in a quality or an intended way then it's just it's a far cry to the, like that second degree of experience and there's just mm-hmm. no there's no making up for it that earbuds thing almost made me cry <laughs> yeah. oh yeah you work it's happening everywhere <laughs> it's happening, like uh you know filmmakers you know like right now uh you know uh, so Instagram is becoming uh, ultimately like because it's billions of users or whatever there's basically it's just where everybody is and so if you want to do anything and be known anywhere then that's where it happens and they just launched uh, uh, IGTV which is Instagram TV that's all vertical video format and so there you go so cinema uh, the, 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 the format and the, the vertical nature of the phone being held in hand is such a prominent thing now that it is pulling it's taking cinema and traditional cinema like our eyes are laid out this way for you know and this is why we like this uh you know sort of uh 16 by 9 kind of aspect ratios yeah nobody cares anymore it's 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 all about the, the i mean the, the medium is the message is driving everything mm-hmm. like it it is defining uh how films are being uh, made going forward at least in the populace and in the you know and there's already a, there's vertical f- film festivals and all this so people are having to rethink everything I wonder if that extends from people just taking pictures of one another being figurative orientation mm-hmm. yeah I know what you mean yeah, you know and there's certain things where I think it actually kind of makes more sense irrespective of the device if, if you know if something's tall yeah. Uh, then that's preferable, I suppose, if you want to be able to get any sense of detail of it or, or whatever mm-hmm. and not have to be so far back. But it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just a very interesting uh, fold. You know, it's a real pretty intense move for them to just go, yep, like, you know, so any anybody that's a purist sort of filmmaker is, is hemming and hawing about it, but at the same time scrambling to figure out, you know, and I think that's interesting. You know, sometimes you got to figure out what's the next, uh, adaptation I need to go through you know uh, mm-hmm. it's not always fun it's not always easy mm-hmm. let's uh, uh, I've been I've been kind of like wondering how we would segue but but I'm just gonna go ahead and just shove us over in this direction now. if you want to tell us about the tacos you had earlier <laughs> these tacos were great Don Julio in Madison <laughs> fantastic tacos I uh, um, uh, but but you're talking about like adapting and changing and being able to do this stuff. And a lot of the things that we've been talking about, you know, like the, the sort of focus and concentration and planning and, and just the time that you put into all this work. And I wonder, um, you know, the art fight podcast is unique because of the way that we touch upon the creativity that we find in combat sports and the, the fight that artists have to find to continue making their work. And, the 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 obvious to me overlap of those two worlds 
And one of the things that's been the biggest surprise about doing this podcast is we've found so many artists and or fighters who also, you know, uh, have a creative life or who also have, you know, experience with the martial arts. And you're uh, another guest that we've had where, you know, here you are, this accomplished painter, got these two shows happening at once right now in Nashville. Um, but you also have uh, a whole background in the martial arts. And so tell, tell, let's, talk, let's talk a little bit about your background in the martial arts. And then maybe we can sort of talk about how that might have influenced you as an artist or, or worked, came into your work. Yeah, it's it's hard to know how much it's, it's influenced me. I, mm-hmm. I I started taking classes in college. Um, mm-hmm. Mainly, I just followed one of my um, friends over to a Shotokan class, and I stuck with it. And he he um, stopped. Oh, so you <laughs> kept going, but he quit. Yeah, and it probably and it's probably something I'd always wanted to do. Growing. And this was in Kansas, is it? Yeah, Kansas City. In Kansas City, yeah. okay. And Shotokan is a is a branch of karate. Yeah, it's a. Uh, Okinawan karate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's one of the o- oldest uh, karate um, organizations in the U.S. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's nonprofit, so it was very non-commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it seems like it was very um, university-centered. Like the um, the Japanese instructor that brought it over here was a student of Funagoshi, who was mm-hmm. one of the. I don't. I don't. I really don't know how everything fits into the foundation of karate, mm-hmm. but Funagoshi was one of the, um, I guess, founders of the way it's practiced now. And then the one of his students, um, uh, to, uh, let's see, how do you say his name? Um, Sumotu Oshima, um, mm-hmm. brought it, brought it over in the fifties to, um, Caltech, mm-hmm. very traditional kind. And so, where I learned it was Kansas City Art Institute, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of it. And he was he learned his he he learned it at a university in Japan. So I feel like there's a yeah, it's, a very, it's taught in universities a lot, and so it's a different type of um, environment than than like say Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. That's very competitive, very and very commercial, and mm-hmm. um, very sport oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I stuck with it. Got a black belt. Um, how many years did that take? Um, like four. Mm-hmm. I was I was much better at that than I am at Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, let me ask you so. real quick because I did after you sent me you sent me some of that information last night and I looked at some stuff uh, about it about Shotokan Karate yeah. and and it it seemed like they were saying that that you know essentially when you were in the lower degrees lower belts you were you know doing lots of stance training and focusing a lot on developing power and stuff yeah. but then as you get up toward black belt then you start getting into this mode of learning how to be more relaxed about it and do more sparring and be faster and things like yeah. that does that sound right well from the time i started it was all about stance and alignment and how to have mm-hmm. a strong stance and how to how to have power without muscle because boxers I think will tell you that the more power you have in your shoulders the more you're trying to use that the less speed you have and it mm-hmm. actually inter- interferes with um, your power so it was all about losing um, power in the shoulders staying very relaxed so you could just have a lot of speed and mm-hmm. then and then alignment uh, emphasis on, on the last um, mm-hmm. uh, part of the punch or kick and so um, it was very technique oriented and and um, just trying to get basically um, more or less getting rid of the idea that you have to, you know, try so hard uh-huh. 
to create power when it's um oh yeah you just have to stay relaxed and move quickly align yeah. everything and throw all your weight into something right yeah only have muscle where muscle matters and mm -hmm. you so. see that you see that a lot in the professional fights to that, that we watch a lot where it's you see um you see uh younger you know or maybe less skilled fighters that don't have they don't have that economy of of movement you know and and I suppose also once you get I can't speak to what it feels like when all of a sudden you're under lights and your underwear on TV <coughs> people are trying to punch you in the face right. but um, you know you probably get out of your wheelhouse probably pretty quickly in the, under that yeah. kind of duress I think you tend to forget a bunch <laughs> yeah so I'm not trying to you know but uh, but you know it, there is something to be said I think for uh, that kind of efficiency across the board but I, I think it's really interesting how you how you talk about the building blocks of this where it's it's just it's almost like I bet you did your buddy leave because he was just sort of bored because it was like in the early stages it's you know maybe so foundational and structural it, it, yeah if you you don't really learn you have no fighting school with Shotokan until you probably you start developing at it probably at a black belt and even then you don't learn um, you, you don't get good at throws and, and there's no ground fighting my one of one of the main instructors instructors in Kansas City. He was um, a, he had been a bouncer. He was he had been in hundreds of fights. At, he was one of his. Um, I see it was in the link that I sent you. Mm -hmm. um, described he had a judo background and, and also, uh -huh. but um, but he was always like ninety percent of your fights are going to end up on the ground. So you have to learn how to fight on the ground. And I I heard stories about guys just getting. Shotokan guys, you know, breaking somebody's nose and really not finishing them off, and then the guy coming back and tackling them and just getting on top of them. And and one of my instructors, or one of the higher levels, who was like a third degree black belt, and which is really pretty high up in Shotokan, the type I practice, you get up. There's only five degree uh -huh. black belts, and this guy, and somebody was like, yeah, his uh, his uh, maybe his ex his wife's ex-husband or something he was like yeah he got manhandled and he didn't, <laughs> he didn't think he could get manhandled like that so um you basically have to cross train i don't know how i got off on this yeah. subject that's how, that's, how, that's how we work here <laughs> yeah. yeah well that takes us to the fact that you're now doing uh brazilian jiu-jitsu yeah. where are you studying that at uh nashville mma Oh, okay, so, yeah, Nashville. That's what I was. Just, we were yeah. just talking about Nashville MMA. We were saying that uh, you might even know some of those those uh, people who are in the kickboxing classes or whatever. There, maybe I yeah. I I, I, I want to migrate over to yeah. kickboxing, and once I get a, at a certain level, I'm comfortable with mm -hmm. it. Ashley Barnes, right? Is that or, is it, or Ashley Burns? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was our second guest, and she's uh, uh, does Muay Thai out of there. Huh. On, um, on Sundays, her, I think her classes are on Sundays. Yeah, they have a big sparring session yeah. every Sunday. I yeah. think they uh, they always post stuff to those post like a big team pick to their Twitter. Looks like a good looks like a good uh, fun group. Some of those people um, train over at the UFC gym slash Legion mm -hmm. Jiu Jitsu up in Hendersonville as well. They just there's a little bit of back and forth going on with other gyms, which is of course great. Um, but so do you do you feel? Um, uh, well, I guess tell me tell me a little bit about jujitsu. Why did you start doing it, and how's it going? <laughs> um, well, it's something I'd wanted to do, and so I was kind of at a lull in painting. It was uh, 2010 is when I started doing it. Uh, actually, 2011. So I had a show with Zai Guys in 2010. Um, 
just felt burnt out and it, I always wanted to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu to get some kind of ground skill mm-hmm. and um, to supplement with the um, with the Shotokan and but also took a little bit of, a little bit of that time studied some judo and um, so yeah I mean I I don't know if I'll if it's a lifelong pursuit mm-hmm. I, I feel more comfortable uh, be, I mean, I have to be selective about why I'm learning it. And mm-hmm. Otherwise, it it um will interfere with what I want to do with painting. So right. basically, it's I, I practice it to Brazilian jiu-jitsu for, mainly to get an eye to get a better sense of ground fighting, mm. which ultimately is for self-defense purposes. Even though I don't, most people, if if you if you want to do self-defense as a hobby mm. or as a as a as an activity and learn the basics of it you have to learn how to ground fight and so mm. um not according so. not according to all these maniacs on the internet <laughs> just, I mean, just grab the wrist and twist <laughs> yeah they flip over <laughs> I mean, you, you have to you have to have an i mean i, I guess it's more it, it is i want to i've always wanted to learn self-defense probably it goes back to high school days of of um having to fight and mm. going to school and worrying about physical violence or whatever but um but now it's just a area of knowledge i want to mm. understand and, and also there's the physical activity of it you keep your body mm. um uh, conditioned and you know you go to a jiu-jitsu class and it's very different than a shotokan class shotokan was very structured and, and you, um, you practice doing the best you can and and it's a mental very mental conditioning and jiu-jitsu it's like you go there and um it, it's mental in a way, but it's less subtle. It's like, how do I get this guy off me? That's it. <laughs> how do I get yeah. this guy? How do I get, how do I get this ten year old girl off of me? I can, <laughs> she's, right. she's murdering me right yeah. now. And so it's it's the competitive aspect. It does, in in a sense, it it it's more realistic. It's like somebody's choking me, and I actually let myself be put to sleep a few weeks ago. Oh, by nice. accident. <laughs> it was. And so um, it's like, yeah, you, you didn't tap. No, I, I was, I thought I could escape the choke, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, this guy does not have it. I'm refused to let this guy. Yeah. Tap me <laughs> <laughs> this guy thinks he's got. <laughs> <laughs> and so, look at the pretty flowers. <laughs> it was, it was an odd feeling, and so it's there. There's a little bit of, uh, you get a little bit of taste of mortality, uh, mortality in Brazilian yeah. jiu-jitsu, and then, but it, it helps to reset your mind. Mm go there you you go there leaving a different and different mindset than when you came and shotokan it's like i had to concentrate to get myself to stop thinking about day-to-day activity and or things that Uh were bothering me and 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 so it was it was mental training shotokan was more meditative give you know how do i get this out of myself so i can concentrate on what i'm doing and yeah throw the best kick that i can Mm -hmm. but Brazilian jiu-jitsu is just in your face. You have to... Yeah. Either you're you know, do you it. can't think about anything else because this guy's about to joke you. <laughs> and th- I mean, there are, there are safer options like intense psychedelic drugs. 
<laughs> That's actually one of the things that I really like is in psychedelic drugs. No, <laughs> one of the things that I really like about training and especially about sparring and stuff to the degree that I've done, I've done a little bit of no gi jujitsu recently. We've been doing uh, some, uh, some wrestling uh, workshops at the gym that I go to and I've gone to lots and lots and lots of MMA classes where we're striking and clinching, maybe working on takedowns mm-hmm. depends on the night. But um, but when we're actually doing uh, not so much drilling, but actually doing some sparring, I mean, a lot of the jujitsu stuff you're doing is kind of just feels like always sparring because you're just constantly working, you know, right. against somebody else. But um, uh, but when we've done sparring after MMA class and stuff, it's like um, it's like by the time I'm done, or certainly when we do these like wrestling uh, things, I was wrestling yesterday, and it's like, man, by the time you leave, it's like you are you are so tired and you are so um, uh, you're physically tired. You're sort of, you know, mentally exhausted. You're, it's just like, you're sort of wrung dry in this way. And now it's like, when I leave, it's like anything that I might be normally worried about, about things I got to get done or, you know, this, the sort of static in your brain. It's like, everything just seems like it's all so manageable right after, somebody's had their head in your chest for an hour like you know just dropping you on the floor right. over and over again you know just, so you're like I'm gonna be just fine fill up, fill up, <laughs> just, just fill out the stupid form and hey, mail the paper yeah, 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 yeah exactly no suddenly yeah suddenly these challenges that can sort of nag at you in your life suddenly it's just like yeah that'll take five minutes it's done <laughs> you know because it's nothing's as hard as some of these other challenges that you face in the gym do you do music no I mean I do you ever I, play music when I was younger, uh-huh. I did. I, I still pick out a guitar, but I'm yeah, not, I'm no good at it. It's good to know right away. <laughs> uh, I, I definitely know what I'm not good at. Um, and if I don't remind myself, other people will remind me to stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, I was just curious. It just seems like you're a, you're a music person. Yeah, I, I I could be. I think if I. You know, if I had pursued it young, when I was younger, I mean, mm. I, I'm a music person, and to the extent that I listen to it, that I like mm. to listen to it. Like what, listening. What about the? What about? I mean, you. I think you may have sort of alluded that you don't know if there's a lot of connection or not. But is there any connection between sort of more like the lessons like this that we were just talking about that you've that you know that we sort of have learned, or you know, this sort of meditative practice that just generally comes out of martial arts in one way or another? Um, is any of that? I mean, is there is there any crossover between between your martial arts life and your art life? There doesn't it's, have it's, to be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I played soccer when I was, you know, up until I was 15, and I still feel like some of those things carry with me in some way. So I guess it doesn't have to be so direct. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it was more with Shotokan because there was such an emphasis on mental conditioning and are you doing your best? It was very Japanese. Mm-hmm. So it's like, are you doing your best? Or, you know, um, can you do better, push harder, you know, mm-hmm. and l- developing willpower. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's not. It's not good if you're if you're determined to do something, and you're not, and it's something you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so, I'm gonna power through this right. dumbass <laughs> thing I'm doing. <laughs> when it, I mean, you should just like let it go. And yeah. I, I feel like it's easy with Shotokan to get into that Japanese mentality of what's proper. Mm. You know, it, the whole thing of the nail, the six up gets pounded down. Mm. Um, so there's not a whole lot of room for creativity. And I, I guess the long-term Shotokan guys would say, Oh, you know, you do it long enough, it, you know, becomes personal. And, but, mm. um, 
I guess it, you're like I got stuff to do <laughs> right <laughs> I can't wait till I'm 80 right. to like, see this all come around yeah and and with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu it's like what you were saying if you if when I go to a class I have to eat something specific I tape up my fingers so I don't you know sprain them which I, I've sprained one finger and and, and probably a couple of them because you're you're uh, you're doing jujitsu in the gi, right? Yeah. The traditional, right. you know, uh, right. uh, martial arts outfit. And, and when you're doing that, just just for people who don't know, you're doing a lot of you guys are doing right. a lot of grabbing, right. grabbing onto that gi, grabbing onto your own hands, right. wrestling and holding each other, and people hurt their fingers all the time. Yeah, and I've had my arm hyperextended, my <laughs> my um, my uh, that that was just from being swept, and it, it was it was a nasty hyperextend extension but on your yeah. elbow or like in your it was my elbow yeah. and, and thankfully it was my left elbow mm-hmm. and not my right because then i could, wouldn't have been able to paint mm. but um you know sprained ankles and stuff but but more importantly it, it's like when i go i can't do anything else for the rest of the day not mm. only does it do i have to like tape fingers warm up go to the classes now we're go home take a shower it eats up two to three hours and then i then I'm so tired. I don't want to do anything. <laughs> and so, and so there's none of this. Like I just feel so great after, no. and I just feel like you know, like, <laughs> Shotokan was a little bit different. Yeah. Like I, like I would feel really good after. I think it because there was so much breathing and so much emphasis on, on movement, certain kinds of movement that I felt uh-huh. energized, especially the next day. But with the jujitsu class, I feel even the next day I feel, a lot of times broken. Mm-hmm. Maybe it could be age, the age difference. Well, now that you're thirty. I've <laughs> been painting for a while now. <laughs> I'm about to be 46 on Saturday. Mm. Happy birthday, Brian. Which is, you know, oh, did I tell you it was my birthday? Yeah, you did. Did I just tell you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm 43, so. Yeah. Well, if you need any wisdom or insight, <laughs> uh, I can Thanks. tell you sort of what I've picked up over the last three, three years. years. Yeah. yeah. Brian, I'll tell you everything he tapes up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just all tape, really. <laughs> No, I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think about the idea of, you know, um, the impermanence of everything. And, you know, being 46, you're like, yeah, there's not a lot I can do now and write it off to youthful indiscretion and feel good about it. Mm-mm. Like, there's, it's kind of a myth at this point, this youthful indiscretion. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of an interesting time. It's like uh, stuff starts getting kind of real. And then you're, you you want to do things like make paintings that are going to last, or you know you start grabbing onto those things that you want to be these culminations and manifestations of all the the work that you've you've done, and it's like this is this is what I'm trying to say into the universe before I'm out of here, you know? Yeah, it's a lot, you know. Uh, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just. I mean, especially if you believe in reincarnation, it's like, ah, you'll get them next time. <laughs> you just summed up the whole of, uh, the whole of, uh, you know, Hindu culture and like, with the, better like next time. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm trying to tell you. The next three years are going to blow your mind. It's all going to come together. Uh, you know, I, I, like I said, my midlife crisis only amounted to an 85 silica. So it's not, it's not totally out of control. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely like a thing, you know, to be 46, 40, when you're 40s, and I like it. I feel like in the same way we were talking about the 20s, mm. I'm don't, I don't miss the 30s at all, really. I don't either. think I miss any of it. Yeah. I mean, I miss ask, <laughs> I can isolate things and be like, oh, I, I really miss when I could drink um, uh, like high-octane beer and not get an immediate headache. Mm. 
you know, things you like just, that. Well, you just have to condition yourself. You have to drink more. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the discipline comes in. This is where the willpower, the, 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 real, yeah. fight, the real fight. Yeah, your, your body sees it as a poison, and if you drink more of it, then, then it'll get used to it. Just start asking for it. Yeah. <laughs> just start asking for it on a Tuesday morning at 7.30 a.m. That's like, right. Yeah, that's where that goes. <laughs> yeah, I've never, I never, never been that big of a drinker. I like to drink beer, but at this point, I just it's PBR and high life, and mm. really, like, it's, I'm, I'm lowbrow for beer, and then if I'm gonna drink anything else, I want just re- the most expensive tequila that is possibly found anywhere. What's your favorite tequila? I don't know, but they, I just go find what's over like $35 a glass, and that's usually a glass. Low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you get like in the little, uh, what do you call it? Um, sniffers? What do you call them? Snifter? Snifters? Brandy snifter? Snifters? <laughs> they come like that. It's like cognac. It's like uh, a... Oh, cognac. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah, so... Glass, yeah. And so you, you... I mean, I've I've had these, you know, I, don't, I couldn't tell you what they're called because wow. I, I couldn't force myself to remember them, but I would rather just drink one, like, $50 glass of tequila just sipping on it for an hour as opposed to anything else. That's top shelf. Wow, that place, uh, Bakersfield Taco or whatever downtown, they have they have a really good tequila selection. I've never so heard of it. Go, Where's that at? It's over Third uh, Avenue and Demumbrian, I think. Oh, yeah, okay. like across from the southern catty corner, across from the southern. Oh, okay. Uh, I really recommend going there, and uh, you can drop two hundred dollars on four glasses of tequila. You should totally do that. that. Doesn't that make sense? Sure, that makes total sense, right? Well, it sounds like a place I should take Anne because Anne really likes to drink tequila, but she she's generally they, they have some things in between. We've gotten nicer tequilas, and then when we do that, she's just sort of like, I really like El Himidor. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, Casadores. That's the one that's like twenty nine dollars a bottle. That's actually uh-huh. very good. That's what I recommend. Casadores to your I think to your we lovely may have wife. Had that before. I think that might have been the one we. We had something uh, when we were on our honeymoon. We had something that we liked a lot. It was really good. I can't remember what it was. Um, That's because you were having a good time. We were, we were, yeah. But but it was it was yummy. This guy uh, at the bar. I think he gave us a couple of them. He gave us you know because yeah they have the blanco and then the 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 there's like two darker ones right. Reposado and añejo. There you go. There you go. Rested yeah, and yeah, yeah. aged. Yeah. So they uh, they would give a. They, I think he like sort of like was just sort of once he realized that we were there so this is at the hotel bar which was actually kind of this rad little crafty cool bar and um, once he realized we were on our honeymoon he just started sort of slipping us drinks as I remember it he's like oh you haven't tried this you gotta try this <laughs> so you should be on your honeymoon at all times yeah I'm gonna say that for now on just all the time yeah hey welcome hey this is we've never been to Bakerfield Taco before <laughs> well we'll have to come back here for our second anniversary <laughs> as long as it's the same wife did I mention it's our honeymoon <laughs> <laughs> so um but yeah uh i think we probably should just wrap it up um we got to get going but um i just want to thank you a lot james for coming and um and i would like you to be a friend of this and come back sometime uh and talk more about all the things and i, I also really want to hear more about some of your terrible early work that's that's really <laughs> fascinating to me i, I want to uh you know i i love i love finding out when people are any creator or any artist you know when, when they're like oh yeah no there's a time where i thought i was onto something and i was not at all i love that um but anyway um i'm still doing that i still haven't figured out uh what what uh 
what's good yet. Um, but anyway, but thanks what's a lot, good? man. Thanks seriously, thanks a lot. And um, Joe Nolan, you got you got your um, parting announcements or your uh, announcements or your things. I want to. Well, first, let's make sure people know. So James, your show at Tinny will be up through the seventh of July, maybe yes. even the eighth. Maybe it'll be up the next day too. They probably won't take it down till Monday. I would think. Probably Monday, but they're not open on Sunday. So. Oh, okay. So seventh, the seventh of July will be the closing reception during the first yeah. Saturday art crawl from six right. to nine ish, and um, and then your your painting is now in Casada at the first center, and that's going to run through September, I think. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, it's up for the summer basically. So go go see, and it's a great show. I actually have a review coming out about Chaos and Awe that'll be uh, on the burnaway.org site. Um, soon probably in a week or so um uh and uh yeah it's a great it's a great survey it's a great show to be a part of you should be very proud of yourself and uh i think it's really well done i really think it's it's the fourth show that the chief curator at the frist mark scala has organized for the frist center the frist art museum and uh it's i mean maybe it's kind of arguably one of the best i would say so uh um so yeah definitely worth checking out and um Brian, I really don't have a whole lot to say. People can. Uh, you don't have any singles coming out. I have a new single out that just came out. I knew it. Just came out. Just came out on the nineteenth of June. I don't think we mentioned it last time, but um, uh, but yeah, I have a new single out. It's called Savage Nomads. I got some great notice. Got some great press on it. And uh, if you go to my SoundCloud page, which is I think I'm Mighty Joe Nolan on SoundCloud too, um, or whatever. Uh, go to my. Uh, my D sound page. Just look up Mighty Joe Nolan. Joe Nolan, Savage Nomads, or just Google Joe Nolan. Yeah, Mighty, Mighty Joe Nolan. At just Joe Nolan, Savage no, just, Nomads. You know what? Just, just forget it. Just, just forget it all. Follow me on Twitter at Mighty Joe Nolan and just, send me a, send me a, a tweet and I'll I'll hook you up with a link. Just meet him. <laughs> meet him at Starbucks. He'll tell you. I think if you go if you actually go to to at Mighty Joe Nolan on Twitter, I think it's my pinned tweet right now. We'll take you to the song. Cool. And so, also, um, uh, what is your password for your Gmail? It, oh, <laughs> hey, wait a second. Um, no, thanks a lot, man. Rear naked um, choke. So I guess we're, we're out of here. I'm trying to think if I have any announcements. I don't, I, I don't know. I, there's all kinds of things going on, but I don't think there's any. Um, see, there's no shows. There's no. So, yeah, I'm just doing my things. Okay. So, uh, anything else for you, man? Nope. Just thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Um, all right. Well, we're going to. Um, Right now, there's music playing, right? Ding, ding, yeah, okay. Ding, ding, ding. All right, thanks a lot, everybody. We'll talk to you guys soon. Okay, guys, I love the Art Fight podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash artfightpodcast. Click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast. And once you get there, you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level. You're going to pledge 99 cents a month to to our production and and help us out. Again, anchor.fm forward slash artfightpodcast. Click on support this podcast. All right. Thanks, everyone.